Hey everyone, just a few announcements before we get started. So in this uh, week's newsletter, you'll see some exciting news uh, for impact investors who ever have trouble finding impact investments that kind of meet your criteria. I am launching an impact investor matching tool where I'll have investors who are looking to make investments sign up and let us know what your criteria are and what you're looking for. And then founders and fund managers who are raising capital can also submit there. And when there's a match, I'll get in touch with the investors, let them know that there's a match. And with your permission, make an introduction to the company or fund that, that you might be interested in. So check out my website for links to that or check out the, the latest newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter and access the matching tool through www.impactinvesting.how, H-O-W. So I hope you'll check that out. Also in this week's newsletter, I've had some new companies added to the database. I've listed out, I think there were six new companies added. Some got added to the infographic as well. So the infographic just covers the Canadian impact investing landscape and, and is actually casts a wider net than just founders and fund managers. It can include governments and family offices and consultants and all sorts of actors within the entire ecosystem. But the matching tool is really about connecting those who want to make investments with those looking for capital. And the last thing, uh, there's uh, an invitation to Spring Activators Fall 2021 Impact Investor Challenge, the finale. Uh, so you can sign up for that to witness the pitches of five top early stage impact investment uh, startups in British Columbia and see which businesses will be awarded uh, $100,000 in investment by the graduating impact investor cohort. So that should be really exciting. Anyway, with that, there's uh, the newsletter's got a lot more in it. So if you're not already subscribed, please do so. Again, you can access all this stuff, impactinvesting.how. And with that, let's get on to the episode. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. While the field of social finance and impact investing has blossomed in recent years, most people still tend to think about donating or impact investing as discrete activities with different approaches and strategies. Say the word philanthropy, and most people think oversized checks at black tie galas where your donations are spent by organizations on goods, services, and programs. Say the words impact investing, and most people think of rigorous due diligence where your money can be leveraged far more through investment and then reinvestment. But what would happen if we combined the two approaches? That's what today's guest is here to discuss. Farhanaz Karim is founder and CEO of Insan Group, a nonprofit raising donations, which the organization then uses to invest in innovative businesses and solutions for the poor, a term they call catalytic philanthropy. Farah is a social entrepreneur, political scientist, and humanist. She has worked with the OSCE, the United Nations, the World Bank, and nonprofits across a wide range of developing countries across multiple continents. Farah was previously a teaching fellow at Harvard University and a faculty member at Zayed University in Dubai, lecturing on global history and humanities. 
She holds a variety of degrees, including a master's in public administration from Harvard, and she is currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Exeter. During this episode, we discuss Sinsan's unique approach, the context in which it is most effective, how Insan makes investment decisions, the unique ways in which they engage donors through the process, examples of entrepreneurs they've invested in, and their current fundraising campaign. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where we discuss how Insan measures and manages impact. And with that, let's get on to the conversation. Farhanaz, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited too. Thank you very much for having me. No, my pleasure. Can you give everybody a quick introduction to you know, who you are and what you're passionate about and working on right now? Sure. So my name is Fahanaz Karim. I am the CEO and founder of Insan Group. Insan is an Arabic word also used in Persian, and it really means human. It's a term that is widely known in Central Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, and even East Africa because, of course, the influence of Arabic and Persian permeated many regions. Insan basically encapsulates everything that I've learned working in the field, like you have, Dave, I know, but it's really the result of many years of experience working for the UN and nonprofits and the World Bank towards the end. And it really is a message about how we should all work together as one human species to do good and to look after each other. In essence. So this is the kind of revelation that I got in the field. But the idea behind Insan is really to change how philanthropy is done and to allocate philanthropic capital to tackle poverty. And what we mean by that is it's a softer version of what we call today impact investing or impact investment because we're trying to work with philanthropists in a way that engages them. That's why we're calling ourselves a boutique impact investment entity. But what we want to do is allocate philanthropic capital to tackle poverty. And the idea really is that traditional philanthropy tends to be short-term, it tends to be supply-driven, it tends to be not very outcome or impact oriented, and it doesn't always engage the beneficiaries or the end users, as we call them. And we wanted to also ensure that we are looking at supporting not just short-term projects or nice initiatives, but really supporting entrepreneurial solutions that can be found in developing countries. And so the idea of Insan is really to connect philanthropic capital to social enterprises in poor countries, in some of the world's poorest countries, and to support them through equity stakes or debt possibly, or grants or blended finance, but really to come in at an early stage so that we can support entrepreneurs to change many lives for good, many lives for better and for forever, really. We want to stay engaged in the long run. Beautiful. I love, I love Insan, the word, and I love your sort of description about what the purpose uh, of what you're doing is. It's a really beautiful, beautiful thought. Um, this, so this is interesting because it's both impact investing and philanthropy combined, because what you're looking for from, and what makes you, I think, somewhat unique in the space is that you're looking for donations. So your donors are receiving presumably usually a tar charitable tax receipt in exchange for the donation. But with that capital, you're instead of spending it on programs and services as most 
uh, registered charities do, you're using that to make investments on your end. And so the idea then, I guess, is that you believe you can be more impactful with that, with that capital, because you can recycle it. You can make investments that generate returns, except those returns don't go back to the donor. They go back to Insan, which you can then use to make more investments and deliver more good. That's exactly right. Yeah. So if I just develop that idea, the idea was really to stay engaged in a role run. So aside from the capital allocation in this kind of innovative form, because you're right, there are very few players in this space. The model is still fairly unique. The idea was really that we can play the role of an early stage investor. We are engaged in the governance structure of these organizations as an observer. So we attend the board meetings and try to help out in other ways, which I can describe after. And, and most importantly, we're trying to measure that this venture that we've backed is actually going to deliver proper human returns. Are we going to change people's lives for the better? And then help them with this measurement piece as well. And after seven years, perhaps eight, perhaps sooner, we haven't exited yet, but I'm sure we will hopefully soon, that any returns would then get reinvested back into Insan so that we can support more enterprises like this. So in a way, it's a, it's a sustainability, a double sustainability model. On the one hand, we are trying to pull capital together for various philanthropies to do more and to change more lives. And on the other hand, we're trying to recuperate some of the returns so that we're making our own institution sustainable because as nonprofits are always caught in this perpetual funding game and fundraising game. And so at least we wanted part of our funding to be sustainable. And we understand there's a part of risk because not every venture will succeed or will result in a massive exit. But this is the catalytic part of the capital is the idea of taking risk for good and, and testing a model that has the potential to scale as well. How can I can come back to that in a minute? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those of the listeners who um, remember episode 14, it was actually, I was talking about, I, I sort of switched roles and had one of my colleagues interview me for the, the podcast. We were, it was talking about our, our work at World Vision and, and we were, I think, wrestling with the same, around the same issues that you're addressing. It sounds like similar types of approaches and, and with this idea of, I found it, we found it difficult to communicate the, the idea that you're going to make a donation, we're going to make an investment. And so sometimes it's hard as a, a we had the issue of at, at World Vision being a, a well-known charity with a long history of being a charity. So communicating in the first place to people, we're going to, we had various models. Some were a true impact investment that generated a return that we paid. And we had another, we were starting a gender impact fund where we had, a, we were raising philanthropic capital so that we could make investments more similar to the model you're talking about here. And it was a challenge on, on both sides of the equation where we were saying, Hey, we're going to pay you a return. And they didn't a lot of, we were going to a lot of existing donors and they didn't quite be hard to get the message across that, no, we're not looking for, this is not a donation. We're going to pay you a return. And then when you went in the impact investing circles and said, we're doing impact investing but we want a donation for it. And then getting that to compute sometimes is difficult. Do you find that's a challenge when this is such a, this isn't a common model? And is it a challenge to get that message across to, to your, the donors uh, that you're reaching? 
And it, I think you've summed it perfectly. In essence, I think fundraising is a difficult endeavor, whatever you're studying. Mm. So you're always trying to approach things in a clever way. And the model may not resonate with everyone, but essentially the proposition from the onset, our proposition was that there is this growing pool of philanthropic capital. There's a recent UBS report that estimates it to, to be about 1.5 trillion uh, dollars global philanthropy today. So this is a massive pool of capital. And this capital is essentially the result of wealthy individuals or corporations that have already received a tax deduction. So in a way, they're not in need of more money, of a financial return. And this was the original idea, is that we want to approach philanthropists and corporations and family offices and enlightened business people who would understand uh, a model like this. Later on came the impact investment option. I'll come back to that in a second. But to answer your question directly, I think that it's uh, because the idea is new and it's innovative, it resonates with certain types of people. And so... What we've had to do is essentially, perhaps not so differently than traditional charity, we had to appeal to both the heart and the mind. And I'm sure you've seen that a lot with World Vision as well. Because philanthropy is really the love of humankind, people have particular interests, particular passions, particular backgrounds particular ethnic or you know, religious affiliation, something speaks to them. And this is why we call ourselves Boutique Impact Investment Entity, because the idea of saying, oh, please give me a few million and let me go do good in the world, doesn't really work with individual philanthropists. What works is to say, we're looking at a phenomenal venture here and there. This is what it's about. And does it speak to you? And if it speaks to the person for whatever reasons, then they are you know, willing to, to fund it or to fund us. And so it had to be done in this particular way. I think that now that the idea of catalytic philanthropy is growing, there are more foundations that are established and well-endowed that are looking at supporting intermediaries like Insan. Or at least I hope so. I think that now the field is a little bit more open to being, being scalable in the sense that the idea of applying for institutional funding for greater sums of money is going to become more de rigueur, right? More easier uh, than it has mm -hmm. been in the past. So I think we're at a turning point in terms of that particular idea taking off at a different level of scale. And I'll just comment back on the other side. And I think the reason why catalytic philanthropy is taking off or about to take off, at least from what I've been reading and from the various webinars I've attended, is because I think a lot of the institutional big foundations, particularly in the US, have realized that the impact investment story of a double bottom line, financial and social, really doesn't work that because there's sometimes a trade-off between the two. And very often there is a trade-off between the two. So that if you're seeking a financial return, you're not always getting the best social return. And if you're seeking impact first, then you have to let go a little bit of the financial return. And that puts into question the, 
kind of like profit motive behind that vehicle. And so I think the sort of growing awareness that impact investment to change the world may not completely work is also enabling the catalytic philanthropic funding to emerge a little bit more and hopefully to become, I dare use the term asset class in the next decade or so, because it sits so beautifully between traditional philanthropy, the idea of taking risk to enable then VC type of capital to come in after that. So I think we sit in the middle of two very important sources of support. Uh, and I think that realization is, is getting bigger at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the idea that A, this approach allows you to potentially be more, get more miles out of every dollar because you can, you know, produce a, a return and, and then reinvest that, but also that it has the ability to potentially expand the donor pie, if you will, that there's, that was an interesting stat that you'd quoted. I haven't seen that. You said it was out of UBS was 1.5 trillion in global donation capital. Potentially, I think you have the ability to potentially expand that entire pie when you have new models of utilizing philanthropic capital in ways that speak to a wider or a new set of potential donors. And I think about there is, there's a certain type of donor, I think that has rightly or wrongly the perception that charities are inefficient and wasteful, and it doesn't speak to them. And to that set of donors and there's probably a particularly high concentration of them among the wealthy <laughs> elite in the world that that probably have a view of free market capitalism is the approach to, to solve our problems. And uh, again, whether that's right or wrong does, is not the point. The point is, if you want to speak to people and meet them where they're at and you want them to hand over capital, you need to do it in a way that 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 calls to them and conceive. If I imagine a world in where that a person with that mindset as is being approached by traditional charities asking for traditional, to use it in traditional ways may not be as appealing as an organization like Unsan that comes along and says, Hey, it is a donation. You're going to get a charitable tax receipt, but we're going to, we're going to use kind of market-based approaches to deliver that change. And that, if, if that then brings out of the woodwork and gets more philanthropic dollars into the, the pool, that's also an, I think, fascinating and, and valuable dynamic that it brings to the table. I think you're spot on because it is, I think it is the way, I think it is a way that traditional philanthropy is going to evolve. And I see it almost like a continuum of philanthropic portfolio adjacent to an impact portfolio, uh, and then perhaps a, a traditional investment portfolio, which hopefully one day will become an impact portfolio in any case. But I see these three as really part of a continuum for the wealthy. Now, the, the issue is, and, and then, okay, let me just explain that in the philanthropic portfolio, I think the reason why catalytic philanthropy is going to be a part of it is because I think there is a greater sort of awareness that we must measure, and I'll come back to the issue of measurement in a second, but that also we're looking for new solutions, right? We're looking for innovations. We're looking for models that haven't really existed. And so the good thing about capitalism is that the for-profit you know, incentive is essentially spurring creative ideas. And so that's why I think catalytic philanthropy is going to be part of it. But I don't think it's going to displace 
let's say, relief or emergency, yeah, normal charitable funding, because unfortunately, the state of the world, as we still know it, requires us to, to respond to so many atrocities and disasters and injustices and inequalities, etc. So I think it will sit as part of something that hopefully will become an accepted part of a philanthropic portfolio. But coming back to, to your point, which is a really important point, the issue of fundraising is really critical. There is, I was on a webinar last week, and there's a massive Impact First fund, so for-profit, but Impact First uh, fund in the US, a really large one, um, that was trying to convince Impact investors to allocate more of their money to Impact First and saying, if we all did that, we could really mobilize so much capital, right, to change the world. And they essentially hit a roadblock because all of these impact investing types of entities are looking for financial returns. So they're like, we can't do that. We can't dilute our returns just to save the world. And, and they're really just this amazing woman who, I think her name is Di Diane Isenberg, is an amazing, passionate woman. And obviously very well networked, et cetera. I mean, this is America where the resources are you know, phenomenal. And, but yet in that context, uh, she roadblock and, and the roadblock is essentially an institutional one because the legal structures that we have into place are so segregated at the moment. And so, you know, what she concluded from her attempt, uh, to move the entire space into something that was more impact first. And I, I, I really want to. I'll come back to that term impact a, a bit later. But what com came out of her attempt was essentially that all that money, the impact first money, is sitting not in impact investing funds. It's actually sitting in another pot of money that wealthy people have. Or, and that's called the philanthropic pool, or it's called the donor advised funds. And so to come back to your question, the main roadblock in terms of fundraising for institutions like ours, and there are very few, um, because you have to be you have to be extremely passionate to be able to do this kind of work. But the main roadblocks are that you're either lucky because you're going to meet wealthy people, high net worth individuals, or somehow have access to them, or you're going to be facing wealth managers who are not particularly informed about philanthropy, I'm being polite, or about allocations that basically do not provide a financial return because they don't have an incentive to do that. They may have a good heart and they may be willing to help, but there's really no incentive in the system for them to do that. So these are the gatekeepers of people with wealth. There are exceptions, of course. And then thirdly, the money may be sitting in a donor advice fund where the wealthy individuals have already received a tax deduction. But again, in the DAF, there is no incentive necessarily to allocate all of them. So you have very skewed incentives throughout the system. And this is essentially what we're up against if you look at it conceptually. And if you look at it as a system, it's, it's clear that if you unlocked some of these barriers, we could do much more and much faster. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of directions I could go with this conversation here. I'm interested in, 
I, I think you're right about the the donor advised funds seem like a big uh, untapped pool of, of capital that and the same thing with the foundation space of you, know, you can put it all together that it feels like the this is a, a place where policy and regulation could help us a lot like we could focus on educating and trying to convince foundations and DAF holders to allocate some of that investment capital to impact investments, or we could just regulate and mandate it. The, and, and I think we have, I think we would have some grounds on which to do that because the foundations and DAF holders have received a charitable contribution for that. They, there's been a benefit for that. So they might be tempted to argue, it's my capital. You can't tell me what to do with it. No, we can because you, you got a big fat tax write-off for it. And if you want to be able to get that tax write-off, then, and by the way, it's not going to cost you anything. That's the good news. So this is capital you've already given away. And so th- that would unlock, I think, just a massive amount of capital. Because what we've seen is that foundations have been slow uh, to make the move in towards you know, impact investing. The, the, there are leading foundations which have done amazing work and very quickly moved assets, but the vast majority of foundations are small family foundations that made no movement at all in, in their assets. And then DAFs, the big problem in a lot of DAFs is you, whereas, is the individual DAF holder doesn't control the investment decisions. It's done by the broader foundation through which they hold the DAF. And so they may not, even, they may have a willingness to, but the if their DAF provider is not allowing them, giving them those options. So the regulation would, I think, in policy would certainly help move the needle a lot. Do you have any thoughts on how we get that needle? Yes, I think that's your right. Regulation, definitely top down. (laughs) You're going to need some (laughs) top down approaches here. Unfortunately, I think you will because the 5% payout in large institutions essentially keep on making money just with the interest. So what you're, when you're saying it's a payout, it's really not even a payout because as soon as there's an out, there's an in again, and sometimes the in is even bigger mm-hmm. than the out. So it's almost like an investment at the moment. And that's a bit troubling from a you know, philosophical perspective. So I think definitely regulation. I think, I think also that just entire private banking what management industry needs a little bit more capacity to to learn to learn and to perhaps educate their donors so that could be a second and uh, and the third i think is is also potential initiatives that we could take to raise awareness as well i know there are c- certain initiatives in the us where nonprofits have actually pushed for these kinds of initiatives I think I came across a couple in the last couple of months and something like you can give 10% of your DAF or give 50% of their DAF. And they're running these you know, campaigns to try to change uh, the system. And so I think the combination of these three work from the charitable space, work from, and also publications and research, or work from educational and wealth managers and regulation, I think together, hopefully in the next few years, we should be able to change. This gives me a good opportunity to, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about, and we're, I want to unpack more of it in Sun and all the great work that you're doing there. I've got loads of questions there, but I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your background and all of us, usually any of us working in this space have, have taken a pretty winding journey to get where we are. And it's all, I find that a fascinating discussion. Can you tell us a little bit about like, where did you, how did you, A, first get inv- interested in development work writ at large and then the impact space and the, anything you can tell us about your journey, I'd love to hear. Sure. So I was born in Madagascar 
And uh, yes, we left when I was a couple of years old. So Madagascar was a French colony. So we went to Paris for maybe, I think, two, three years. And then my parents decided that they wanted to explore new opportunities and start from scratch. And so we ended up in Canada. And so I, I grew up in Canada and, and lived there from the age of five to, to 20. And in Montreal? I was in Montreal. you went to McGill. Yeah. I went to McGill, okay. yes. I was in Montreal. Right. So I, my parents weren't sure if it was going to work out. They put my brother and I in a French lycée and just so that if we had to go back to France, it would be easy to, to adjust. So I grew up in this French little ecosystem until I went to McGill. But the revelation about what I wanted to do actually came very early for me, mm. a little too early, I think. And, and I have to credit my parents for this because we went on a trip to India when I was 11 years old. And I remember my age because my grandmother passed away a few months after. And I remember this entire trip and, um, and then going back uh, to Paris for her a bit later after she had passed. But that journey that we took together to India was a real eye-opener because for some reason we also went to Bangladesh and we stopped in Calcutta. And I remember Calcutta, I thought it was just a memory that I had of these children on the streets and the really abject poverty. And essentially that just triggered something in me. And when I came back to school, I started researching, why are people poor? <laughs> why? Why is this going on in the world? And, and how- At 11, you were researching that? Yes, I was. I was. Oh, wow. Yes, I was locking myself in the library and researching this. And, and then I, and this is how I started learning about some diseases and you know, malnutrition and different, different sort of relief aid programs. And this is how I started learning about the United Nations. And basically by the age of 14, I went around saying to everyone, I'm going to become United Nations Secretary General one day. My ambition. Yeah, and right. uh, <laughs> to everybody just laughed and thought, okay. So this is really what I wanted to do. And uh, I really didn't question anything. I just went along that path. And uh, again, I was fortunate because my parents are entrepreneurs and we didn't really we didn't really have an easy time when we arrived in Canada because as many immigrant families, we you know, had started from scratch and they, they worked very long hours with everything that comes with early days of a migration, the economic sort of slowdown in Montreal after the Olympics, and of course, getting to understand the regulations of the country. So you know, we went through a very hard time economically and uh, my parents worked really hard. And one of the things that I'm very grateful for is that they always pushed my brother and I not only to, to seek an education, but also to do whatever. And so we did. And so this is essentially how I studied political science and languages at McGill and then went to Geneva, which I thought was you know, the ideal way to get into the United Nations and uh, pursued my first master's there for a couple of years. And you know, did my first internship with UNHCR, worked in Geneva for a couple of years around refugee migration issues, actually a few years in total. And then basically I'm now in my early twenties and thinking, okay, I'm working in the UN ecosystem. I live in Geneva, but surely I'm not really saving the world yet. So this is a little bit too comfortable. And I don't know if you've been to Switzerland. 
But if you've been to Switzerland, it's uh, paradise. And the Lucerne. Yeah, it's, it's paradise on earth. Yeah, <laughs> it's just perfection. And so mm -hmm. I thought to myself, no, there's, I have to go to the field now. And so I essentially accumulated my holidays and went to Bosnia. This was my first field experience mm. in my mid-20s to with the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It was like this body that was in charge of supervising elections that were taking place. And this was the election after the war in Bosnia, Dayton Agreement. Mm. And I went for a month, you know, get shipped in different places and you end up in, I ended up in Bihar, Masim Enclave, and I spent three, four weeks there in a team and basically in charge of the electoral polling stations, the awareness, and then the supervision of elections, and then the ballot counting, etc. And that experience was the first kind of, the first experience that told me this is the kind of work that I really enjoy doing to be able to understand what people have gone through. So in this case, it was conflict and war. And then what comes behind, which is you know, rebuilding a country from scratch. And that's really what propelled me forward. And my next mission was then with, I was posted as a United Nations volunteer and worked for the UN for a couple of years between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So this is what we used to call Taliban Afghanistan. And then very saddened that, that we're still calling it Taliban Afghanistan after, after more than 20 years now, because we thought that was it after I had gone back. So I actually spent five years in total in Afghanistan, two years with the UN, mm -hmm. and then went to pursue a second master's at Harvard, a master in public administration. And then it ended up again in Afghanistan, take two. And take two was when we thought, when we thought this was post-Taliban Afghanistan, this is 2001, 2002, so after 9-11. And, uh, and then I was uh, in charge of managing a French nonprofit called Acted. And I spent another two, three years there, so in total two years. So this is really my formative, my formative experience. And I think this is the main differentiator and the main propeller behind the idea of insight. And when, so when in that journey did Insan come? I think it was, is it 2007 that you started it officially? So the idea of Insan really was fomenting in my mind already since my first time in Afghanistan when I was mm. with the UN. I'll tell you a, a story because it's an, it's an interesting story. I was, my title was the Information Education Communications Officer. So I had to do some of the reporting and evaluation work of the UN's programs. I had to set up some programs for women because as a woman, I had access to women because remember, this was very segregated at the time, since during Taiwan time. And um, on one of these kind of field trips outside, outside the capital and outside Pakistan, we ended up in a place called Farah. This is a province in Afghanistan. And there was no UN guest house and we lived with a family. And I was there with some of my colleagues and we had to essentially report on a huge um, irrigation canal that the UN had built and that was changing the lives of villagers. And the regional program officer had invited me and said, Farah, why don't you come so we can take pictures, write an article about it, and then we'll get more funding. And so when I stayed with this family, my, my diary, my Persian was rudimentary, but it, it was still there. And two things really came to my mind during that stay. So I was sleeping in the same room as one of the girls, maybe 
15 or 16 years old. And in the morning, she would wake up and boil water and make the bread, etc. And the first thing that really struck me in that experience, uh, in that village, was how, despite the fact that obviously we had nothing in common in terms of upbringing and opportunity and, and luck, but how we're so similar, right? We all wake up. <laughs> We all do the same things. We worry about our food. We worry about getting dressed. We worry about learning something. I was learning Dari. She was learning English. And we're all seeking knowledge to understand what is going on around us. And so they were listening to BBC Persian radio, the lifeline in Afghanistan, right? 99% of people on the radio, no matter where they were. And I was just struck by the similarity of our existences. And that was the first thing where I thought it was really the humanity of, of the experience. And the second thing was one morning when she woke up, her name was Leila. This is under Taliban. She would be wearing a burqa if she left the house, but she still went to that small mirror and she started putting blue eyeliner on her eyes. And I just looked at her and I just thought, wow, that is resilience. Because knowing that it was such a dark time in the history of Afghanistan and that there was very little hope at the time that things were going to change, she still had the courage and the care to paint her face and smile and move on. And that is the spirit of resilience that I found over and over again wherever I've worked. And that's really... The idea of insan, which of course this is a word that comes back a lot in Persian poetry as well. So it was always on my mind. And when I was at Harvard, I took, you know, courses at HBS and MIT and business plan writing. And this is the hour of social entrepreneurship and reading all this stuff. And I thought one day I'm going to, to do this, to do my own thing. And, uh, and then, and then slowly it was a second experience where I basically saw a lot of money going to to projects that were short-term. So if I had to summarize it, it was really two things that really propelled me to move forward and set up Insan. The first thing was the idea that not enough philanthropic capital was going to support entrepreneurial in it. That was the first proposition. A lot of money, aid, philanthropy was going to short-term stuff but not necessarily to really back people who had great ideas, products or services that were relevant to those markets or had ideas that could create large-scale employment. So ironically, we were okay with funding three-month, six-month projects around tailoring and weaving or build X number of, of wells, but we were not okay with backing entrepreneurs that were actually going to do something phenomenal potentially phenomenal in their country. So I thought that there's something wrong with that. So we wanted to address that, first of all, with Insan's model, hence the idea of equity grants, etc., blended finance. And the second idea is also very simple. The second idea is that people thought that they were doing good, but really, how do we know? Because I didn't think at the time that we were measuring the right things. We were measuring how much money we spent, inputs. We were measuring what we built, outputs, but we weren't necessarily measuring outcomes or impacts. So with these two ideas, we moved forward to registering Sun in the U.S. as a 501c3, which gave us essentially 
the possibility and the flexibility, we're lucky because of that structure, to to focus on these two aspects and, and move forward with that. That's a beautiful story. It, it reminds me of my experiences, led me to a conclusion that despite the vast differences that there are between people and cultures and views, and that's easy to see from abroad when you aren't, when you just read about or hear about people, but when you visit and then you get to know people, realize you see the other side of the equation. And both of these things I think are equally true is that humans are very different from one another, but we're also remarkably similar in those similarities. I think we need to celebrate the differences and then also understand and really feel that, that we are all brothers and sisters. And, and that just becomes apparent in a lot of the same ways, um, as you're mentioning. So I find that beautiful. I do want to talk about the impact, measuring impact, because that's a really great, rich discussion we can have there. And, and I know that's something that's really fundamental to attend. So I, I want to, I want to just, we touched on this before. So let's talk about that first of the two things that sparked it. So donations aren't going to entrepreneurs, the philanthropic capital is going to typical programs and services that are tend to be shorter term in nature. And I think there are, so I agree with you that there's a, that's one way in which philanthropy can evolve, right? Is it doesn't have to just go to the typical things we've been doing with it. It can go to other type and it can be used in other types of models. Like we've been talking about entrepreneurs in a lot of these countries have a terrible time accessing capital. And we've seen the, the flourishing of microfinance. But that's just such a narrow band of solving this problem. And so I think maybe elaborate a little bit on where I think maybe you see the breakdowns in terms of, and, and the challenges. So even if you have the desire to say, hey, we want to get capital into the hands of entrepreneurs in these developing countries, what are some of the things that make it difficult to do that? Yeah, I think on the point of microfinance, and it's been enough research done now that microfinance has played a key role, essentially, as let's call it, as for lack of a better word, an hors d'oeuvre, an appetizer mm-hmm. right. <laughs> to the bigger menu that we're still collectively working on, social finance or capital for good or however we want to call it, right? But there's been enough studies, I think, done that whereas microfinance has been instrumental in smoothing the periods that are difficult for the poor in terms of cash and potentially also giving them a cushion to support health or education for their children, that it hasn't necessarily moved the needle in terms of lifting people, lifting people out of poverty. So this is at least my understanding from the research done on microfinance. So if we're looking at Insan's model, and it's not just a question of Insan's model, it's, it is Obviously, we're not, we're, first of all, we're you know, very small and, and modest and, and humble. And let me make a parenthesis on this because I think this is very important to say this. I think that no matter how many millions of dollars people ha- have under management, I've seen very well-endowed funds that are really not moving any needle. I've seen very small organizations moving the needle. I've seen there's a bit of everything in the world. But in the greater scheme of things, the UN estimates that if we were to meet the sustainable development goals, right, SDG 1s, ending poverty, we're, we're looking at five to seven trillion dollars needed. So you know, the capital needs are enormous. So even if we were incredibly efficient, superhumans, 
it's a difficult endeavor. And so whatever we're all working on in our own small, medium or bigger capacities, I think we are relatively all small given, given the needs that exist in the world. We're still talking about 3.6 to 3.8 billion people living under $5.50 a day. I'm going with the def definition of the World Bank on poverty here, but that's, we are in, in 2021 and we're living in this world where again, I'm going to quote another statistic because I hope that if anyone's listening to this podcast or where one day there's eight people, eight men in the world today that own as, as much as 3.6 billion people in the world. And that's not really, that's not really a problem about these eight men because perhaps it created so much value and it's not because if they were poor, it would be better. I, I, I don't think so. But what we're saying here is we're still living in and operating within a system that is creating huge levels of inequality. So I think we have to really look at things as part of a greater analytical framework that is both macro and micro in order to understand where we all fit and where we're all trying to do good, where we all complement each other. And I'll just say one quick other thing. I've listened to a lot of your other podcasts and amazed by some of the people that have come and, and spoken on with you and, and discussing your ideas. And there's so many wonderful people taking a little bit of a piece of the problem, right? And tackling it in their own little ways. And I think that's really beautiful. Everyone's doing it. But to come back to, I just wanted to, to put this out because when people feel too sure about their own sense of importance, we need to remember that the scale of the, of the problem is massive. So coming back to, to where, where our field experience has thought us to be, which I think is still relevant, right? In 2017, we registered 13, 14 years later. It's the same problem still today. It is, you can call it the missing middle, the early stage funding, the seed funding. You can give it a name that you want, the first entrepreneurial push. That's why we're calling it catalytic funding. But it's basically risk capital, right? And the risk capital what we have found is generally the needs are between 50 to $200,000 more or less. After that, or in conjunction with that, they're able to attract maybe a little bit more DFI funding and then maybe some impact investors that are impact first oriented and then maybe some impact investors that are finance. You know, first oriented in series A, B, C, D, etc. That's the idea. And, and so that's exactly where we situated. So not microfinance, not mesofinance, not five to 10,000, but really the 50 to 200,000 where we basically are looking for, we're really looking for three. And I, I recently came across a model that I really liked, which was developed by Harvard professor Peter Frumkin that really helped me put the, sorry, microphones. Peter Frumkin's model, which really helped me put this neatly into a framework, because before that I was myself struggling with the various components of how do we define catalytic funding properly. And his framework really spoke to me in that sense. So essentially we're looking at three things. The idea of leverage that we already spoke about, called this theory of leverage. The idea that 
the catalytic capital is going to attract more capital. So we come in early stage and then hopefully that venture will raise 5x, 10x, 20x, 30x in due course. And that when there's an exit, it comes back. So that's the second sort of piece of the leverage, right? The IRR that we could calculate and that we calculate every year and then potential exit return eventually. So this is the leverage part of what we are looking at. There's the theory of change, which is the core, which is really that we want to change many lives for better, for good. So is this venture going to create employment? Is it you know, coming up with a product or service that's relevant for that market? As it positioning itself so it's going to exist and be competitive in the next 10 to 20 years? Is it going to be a going concern, etc.? We can come back to that. So that's just a theory of change. And then, of course, we can embed different lenses in looking at that. Again, we can come back to due diligence. And then finally, the third is the theory of scale, right? And the theory of scale is to say, is there something innovative in this model where we can possibly use instance philanthropic catalytic capital to test something which could then be replicated in X number of slums, X number of provinces, of states, X number of countries, and, and then maybe regions eventually. So are we here really nourishing the innovation that entrepreneurs generally have, right, in the capitalistic world, but that we're trying to give social entrepreneurs the same push, right, the same privilege? of playing around and innovating and uh, rather than punishing. Yeah, that's, I love all of that. That is a helpful for, for model for, for thinking about this. The idea of using, I think this is where a lot of the opportunity, social finance with market-based approaches, impact investing, whatever terms you want to use for this idea of bringing in for-profit and private capital to the table where there's a lot of opportunity is the shifting around of the risk and return to the appropriate parties who have the appetite for that. And that's how you expand the pie, right? So I think this is part of what made social and development impact bonds an interesting proposition. I think they have some challenges with their level of complexity involved in them and the number of stakeholders, but the idea that you can take a party that is willing to you know, adopt the risk in, in, in return for some sort of reward, financial reward. And then you have an outcome payer that's going to stand to benefit from this program and use that as a way to prove uh, a new model. It is, there's something really valuable there. And so the idea of, as you say, using catalytic capital to take those types of risks that an investor otherwise wouldn't have the appetite for and use the, the philanthropic capital to take those risks and to prove out new models, which would then the scale that you get from that, like, great, we've proven this works now. And now we can set up investment products that actually can pay returns. And we have an idea of what return we can pay because we've done it before is really powerful. So I, I love that you're teasing out that aspect of what the opportunity set for catalytic philanthropy. It's exactly that. And on the one hand, it's super exciting, but it takes a lot of explaining because you'd be surprised that sometimes the idea of risk capital, you still have to reassure philanthropists that no, you're not mm -hmm. going to lose anything. <laughs> right. You right. are still going to get your tax deduction and right. you are still giving to a nonprofit. 
we are not going anywhere. And uh, literally, I had to say this a couple of times. And I said, you know, we've been around. We've been around and we've been around for a while. And we've also been funded by large institutions and very, you know, reputable, you know, funders. So don't worry. We're doing this. We're doing this properly. But what we're saying is if we're doing a work properly, then the worst case scenario is that we're going to change many more lives. This is the worst case scenario. And then the best scenario is we're going to change many more lives and then we're going to get some money back and then we're going to do it all over again. So in right. a way, it's a win-win situation, but, but yes, it still requires explaining because it's this hybrid model of, yes, you can have your cake and eat it too. Believe it or not. And people mm -hmm. are, you've never heard something like this. So you still have to sell something that is that good. But I want to come back to something that you said, which is really important. And then, and then we can go to the impact stuff is that the, the obstacles, of course, in the range of 50 to 200,000. And this is why the positioning of Insan is to remember when we came up with the name Insan, we we're talking to people and in the US people would go, does that mean insane? <laughs> <laughs> and, I would, and I would just laugh and I said, maybe we are insane. Maybe, you yeah, have a point maybe we here. need to be a little bit. <laughs> That's right. And I'll take that as a compliment because I think right. you need to be insane to be able to, first of all, to believe that you can actually change the world. But, but it, it is a niche where, with reason, not many others are going in because the economics, the economics of that model, right? Um, well, coming back to impact, but due diligence, the monitoring, the evaluation of impact, the sourcing of these things, right, requires an enormous amount of time and, and an appetite for, you have to be a metrics geek, basically, to <laughs> engage in this kind of work. And, and as from your time in World Vision, donors and uh, philanthropists are not really, not always very open to the idea of investing high amounts in operational expenses. And so the economics of the model are dissuasive for a lot of the impact investing entities. And I'll say one thing about this, which is, I think is really important because uh, I think the realization of this is now emerging that these impact investing entities, because they are either fundamentally profit driven, maybe not super profit driven, but little bit profit driven, they are essentially going to be attracted to lucrative markets. And so what that means is that they're going to go to markets, first of all, in terms of geography that are going to either have a market size that is bigger or have an ecosystem of pipeline system that is more established or an entrepreneurial system that is more established, or they're just going to go to countries that speak English because it's easier. And so you have a filtering that is going on in the world of impact investing, where for those who are interested, for instance, in Sub-Saharan Africa, I'll take that as an example, capital tends to go to the wealthier countries and just to a few countries. The second layer is, of course, within that, because of the profit motive, they're going to go towards ideas that are going to service market segments that are a bit wealthier. So middle class or upper class money is not going to be at the bottom of pyramids. So of course, it's easier to fund, let's say, an ed tech product 
that is going to cost more and and appeal to wealthy people. It's easier to generate profits this way. And so then you have the first bias is selective geography, let's call it. The second bias is market segment upward mobility trend. So no one really stays at the bottom or is almost pushed to go up. And then the third is if you're looking at the sectors where a lot of these capital allocations are going, they're going to go to sectors where you're likely to have a potential exit or something sexy. And that just generates tech or fintech and things like this, consumer goods. Again, these are not necessarily, they can be, I'm not saying they can never be, but they're not necessarily the ones that are really catering to addressing the basic needs of the poor. And so there are legitimate reasons why in the particular 50 to 200,000 tranche of funding where we're at, there's a particular reason why there are not so many players. Yeah, that's all really well said. Even with the, with traditional investors or, or just those who hold the vast majority of capital, they just, even a very fundamental problem of where do you source the ideas when you don't have boots on the ground, you don't have any connections into the types of environments you want to be allocating capital to. And, and there, and there aren't a lot of investment organizations that do have that. There are some, and it's a growing number and we're tackling that problem a little bit, but just, and, and even when that does happen, it, it tends to con congregate around urban centers rather than rural areas. And so all of the things in which you, you pointed out were, you, we're going to, unless we have the, the freedom financially to pursue those things that maybe have more risk are more expensive, the fear, the pure for-profit impact investment approach is not going to let us tackle the more intractable problems, reach the harder to reach people, take on the bigger risk projects where the outcome is less clear. And as I think you pointed out really eloquently through this philanthropic capital, it's not, it's, it's not better nor worse than, uh, traditional philanthropic capital or impact investing. It's just, it's filling a very important need in an entire suite of, of tools that, that we need to utilize here. So I love all that. Can we, I, I, I'm going to, we're going to dive into the impact stuff in, in some more detail, but I'd love to just give a flavor for what types of geographies are, is Insan working in? Can you give maybe examples of types of investments you've made? Are, are there certain SDGs of focus that you're limiting yourself to right now? So we essentially looked at the development data of the UN and if you're looking at where some of the poorest in the world are, it's Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. The investments we've made, um, social investments, let's call them, that we've made so far have been in India and in, in East Africa, particularly in Kenya. And I'll give you a couple of examples in a second, but we're actually um, in the process of doing some due diligence in Madagascar. And we're also very keen on Francophone Africa, which is neglected from the ecosystem in terms of funding. Again, in this particular niche, I think there are more VC players coming into Sub-Saharan Africa now, even Francophone Africa every week, but not necessarily at this particular charge. So where we focus on are, of course, SDG 1 is the overarching SDG, and then you know, we're interested in education, in health, and in supply chains. Those are the three areas that we focus on. And uh, we've only supported one nonprofit. So Meds are 
criteria or leverage and uh, theory of change and, and scale called Gyanshala. In fact, Gyanshala, which is based in Gujarat, in Ahmedabad, is a phenomenal organization, which was you know, later funded by a range of very large foundations. In fact, we worked with them with a large MacArthur Foundation grant to test their model and refine it at the high school level. And they're now the recipient of quality education development impact bonds. And we discovered them a decade ago or so. But let me give you an example of a couple of organizations for profit that we took early interest in. First is Soko, shopsoko. Is an, is an amazing company based out of Nairobi that essentially saw the entire potential of artisans working in the slums of Nairobi, not just Kibera, but other slums, and it expanded over the last uh, few years to various counties. And, and seeing that a lot of the things that they've made were really not selling for very much. And so how could they design uh, jewelry in a way that could remunerate these artisans at a fairer wage, make them work in better conditions, and then create through a supply chain technology platform efficiencies so that these particular products could be exported to globally, actually, I was going to say Western markets, foreign markets, actually globally, digital marketplaces. And uh, so shopsoko.com, when we, when we went to do due diligence in the field, we were really in the slums talking to the artisans and we really liked their model again, because the supply chain tech part, the tech behind it, we thought could be something that could apply to many jurisdictions because you have this artisan base, yes, people say it's the second largest employer. In developing countries, the entire after agriculture, handicraft production was the second biggest employer after agriculture. So again, in terms of creating employment, and then in other cases, like the case of Mana Artisans, which we uh, funded in India, it's, it's also a question of craft preservations because some of the things they make are so beautiful and they go to remote areas to find artisans that have been doing this from generation to generation. So those are kind of things that we've done under what we call supply chain. And, and we're leaving the, the term supply chain quite open because we're also interested in other things, so agribusinesses, so people also. So anything that goes from A to B, a product, a service, a person. And, uh, and so that's our idea of supply chain. And uh, mobility, I think, is going to be something that we're going to be looking at in the next months very closely. But to give you one more example, Accessafia. Aksafia 2016-17, we invested in them. We had a couple of clinics, again, in Kenya, in the slums. We came in as an early investor, and, and now they have 15 clinics, and they're preparing to raise money for their Series A round. And in fact, they also, they also benefited from support from Global Challenges Canada as well. And, but it's extremely gratifying to see when I was telling you the worst case scenario is going to change many lives. Well, we're talking here about almost 300,000 patients that have gone through their clinics. And we're talking about metric system, uh, a metric system that is very detailed, very professionally run, where they are tracking disease profiles. They are following up with SMS after seven days to make sure that the, whatever brought a patient to the clinic is, has been treated and you know, they have recovery rates of 19% and uh, this kind of data. So this is the worst case scenario. And, and so the best case is on it goes for many more clinics in many more places.
what was the name of that uh, one? Access Afia. Access Afia? Yes. Afia means how? In Swahili. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So in the case of, for instance, Soko, were you, what did you provide for them? Was that debt capital? Was it grant capital? Is there any, are you providing any market connections or any other type of a coaching or assistance along with the capital? So in the case of Soko, we came in as part of the seed funding round and it was, I think, 50,000 at the time. And then we supported them to some grant funding from our own pool of philanthropists. And then we act as a fiscal sponsor for them so that when they apply for, let's say, COVID relief or prize money for innovations, because their, their platform benefited from a lot of sort of prize money as well. So we act as their fiscal sponsor where we're able to channel that capital through them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get it because... I need to have a nonprofit structure to take some of that funding. And we, of course, connected them with potential funders. And we've also been to the field to help them with videography, photography work, which is something that we've done. And then punctual requests around maybe help on impact or help on meeting a particular funder, etc. So strategic advice on that. And we had a very active role in the first, I would say, three years or so and then later came a large investor not that much later in fact on many of these on many of these investments that we made it didn't take very long for a much larger investor to come in with i think in their case was about 750 and then millions and millions after and the same for mela and the same for impact investors that followed through in most of these so in that sense that the theory of leverage was validated early on because a few months later you start seeing an interest in some of their in some of their growth yeah and of course i have to point out that if you're looking at the sustained again sustained social impact it's always impressive if it's measured and we'll talk about measurements in, in a minute but but also that these are and sometimes people forget that these are these are businesses, right? There's ups and downs. And so there will be ups and downs and there is an element of risk, of course. And there is a novelty of what they're trying to do. And I think the effort and the creativity and the hard work that's put into this is really so that it eventually pays off financially, but also pays off in terms of development impact. Because if that can be replicated, then it's truly a win-win. Do you, this is maybe a bit of a, a theory, I would love for you to confirm whether you think this, whether this is true in your experience. I imagine having a philanthropic investor at the earliest stages of this kind of early bottom part of the missing middle of, of finance also maybe has the added benefit of your interest is impact first, obviously. And so the terms and the kind of financial arrangement that the stake you negotiate if you're taking an equity stake or the terms of the debt are going to be more favorable. Uh, and let's take equity as an example, where you, you come in and then as they exit, and maybe you're not even exiting, but as another investor comes in for, for a, a next round of financing, presumably you're also at the table with them negotiating the next round of financing. Is that, do you view that as part of the value add that you can to the table and in terms of making sure that they're not, you don't have an extractive investor come along and take, you know, far too large a percentage of the, the, the pie from these 
hardworking founders. Is that, do you view that as part of your value add or is that not a dynamic at play? I wish it was a dynamic at play, but unfortunately the way, the way investment is done is the leverage that you have is in the early stage of the financing, right? And the idea is that your return is going to be bigger than the next entity that's going to come around. And that's really the benefit that you get. And, uh, and anything that you negotiate in terms of observer status on the board and things like this, and any you know, minority protection device, if you have a good lawyer that's helped you structure that. But what happens, what happens very often is the initial angel investors, you know, which includes, you know, family and friends of these entrepreneurs very often are minority shareholders and will remain minority shareholders and will eventually get drowned into a bigger round. And that's basically the nature of the game. And so I think minority investors, <clears throat> of course, you can have, again, minority protection provisions, but these, um, these are um, not likely to, not really likely to change the power dynamic that comes with a massive infusion of cash in the next round. Okay. And you can't really fight that because you want that. Because on paper, your, your own valuation goes up and that's good. And on paper, it means that what you saw in that particular entrepreneur or that particular model or that particular talent, because a lot of it is, is zeitgeist, right? It's just being there in spirit at the time. It's validated because, hey, there's a big impact investor that came out, even a VC funder that came. Actually, mm -hmm. when a VC funder comes, I'm, I'm a little bit you know, skeptical about <laughs> about whether okay. that was the right thing to do. But uh, luckily we, we didn't have that scenario. We stayed away from these kinds of ventures because you have to wonder why someone would be attracted to that. But, but it's essentially, so this is just the nature of the game and you're going to get increasingly diluted. But to come back to the model of how, and that's really why I think catalytic capital, I'm just going to plug this in because um, here, because I think it makes sense to point it out. So aside from the shield experience of Insan, which really is a differentiator, one of the things that's embedded in the model, not completely by choice, partly by choice, by design, but partly because we were operating out of, I was in the UAE for a decade and our growth was a little bit limited by the regulation in that country. And now that I've relocated to London, I'm, I'm trying to scale Insan. But by design and by circumstances, we basically built a model that is extremely cost-effective. And by cost-effective, I don't mean that this, uh, it was not just a question of salaries and things like this. No, it was a question of making sure that we operate close to fields in the sense that we didn't want operational expenses that are heavy. So we operated from the start as a nimble organization. And to this day, very honestly, I don't understand most models that I see around me. I don't understand why everybody goes in every country to open an office and pay huge amounts of rent and huge amounts of, because you know this from your time in the field, huge amounts of security infrastructure, even for their teams, right? Security guards, et cetera, and security issues, insurance, et cetera. And, and these very heavy structures, operational cost structures. And we wanted to, from the start, make sure that it doesn't matter where we are and it doesn't matter where the team's going to be in the world. 
we're always going to be going to the field to do our due diligence or monitoring or evaluation whenever the time is right. And this will still be cheaper than having these, having sort of structures. And when we hire, we try to hire local. And then on these issues of sort of legal expertise, financial expertise, private equity types, and impact expertise, a lot of that we have found on a pro bono basis. There is no way a nonprofit can afford salaries of half a million dollars, which is pretty much what a lot of these people have paid. So we're expected to do good with almost nothing, which is okay. It's okay to be cost-effective. I don't, I'm okay with the principle of maximize everything that we can from the dollar that's been given by a generous donor. But on the other hand, it is only really possible, at least based on our experience at Insight and our voice experience, that is only possible if you have that network of very generous funders, but also very generous professionals that are helping us. And we've been extremely fortunate to thank all of them for supporting us. And I could list a gazillion law firms that have helped us along the way. That's um, really interesting. I, I want to make sure we leave time for two uh, issues before we wrap up here, because I want to be conscious of your time. One is I want to talk about the impact measurement side of things, and then talk about your fundraising campaign, because you, you're right now in the process of raising capital and finding those donors who are going to go to hand over that catalytic philanthropic capital. So let's start with the impact measurement. This is just browsing through your materials and your deck and your website. Impact measurement is at the forefront of what you do and what you're about. And you've talked about it on the podcast already. It's not easier said than done. If you really want to get to, are we making a difference? And is the difference that we're, that the change that we're seeing, is that attributable to us is a very complex question. Can you you know, talk a little bit about how you view that and how you... It's an excellent question. I'm going to just, I think I want to demystify the term impact for whoever listens to this podcast. And I think the best way to demystify it is really to explain that impact is not about building a school, if we take the example of education, but it is about making sure that the school is staffed with good teachers that the students are learning and that they are passing to the next grade and then eventually to the next one. And then eventually they will either go to a high school or university or get work. So this is the chain of here is my inputs, here is my output, here is my outcome, the learning outcomes, and then what happens to the students? This is really, from a pure field perspective, the reality of impact. And if we were to take another example, let's say you're building a well, it's not enough to build a well. You have to know that it's giving clean water and you have to make sure it's clean. So measure the pH. And then you have to stay long enough to know that clean water is then having positive incidence on the profile of disease in village X or Y. And so that's really impact in a nutshell. And so if you put it in those very simple terms, it's not really rocket science that building a school is really not going to change anything. <laughs> no. If you don't have the teachers and the textbooks and, and the follow through of support funding for the students to go to the next grade. And this is why it doesn't become rocket science anymore to tell a donor 
listen, thank you if you want to support us, but it's got to be a five-year commitment because one-year donation doesn't work. And, and, and also all these marketing gimmicks about the sponsor, a child for a year, etc. All of these things are, are sad. They're sad marketing packages that are actually very hurtful to the overall impact that we're all trying to have, which is really to say, are we moving the needle in making sure that things are really progressing? So that I just wanted to put this out there. Now, in our work at Insan, of course, we've done some of this work, um, particularly on education with Gantchara, where we've done longitudinal studies, where we've gone to the field for four or five years. And one of the things that really differentiates Insan's impact measurement approach is that we don't concoct indicators in a boardroom or in our heads, but we actually go to the field and speak to the end users. And the end user is a terminology that we use because coming back to something you said earlier, I think the challenge that people have is a conceptual challenge that on the one hand, if it's a for-profit, that your, your clients, the person who's going to buy, and let's, let's take the example of Soko, right? The person who's going to buy a piece of jewelry made in the slums is going to a Westerner, ethically fashioned minded. But in fact, so that this is the client, the customer base. But then there is the other end user, your other client that you're servicing, which is the artisan in the field. And you need to collect data on where you're changing that life. So it's this double system that you need to have into place. And I think that the fact that we have been, that we have embedded due diligence in the field with the end user, photography, geography, interviews, monitoring over a number of years, I think sets us apart. So I, I just wanted to put this out there. I know we're going to run out of time, but essentially one of the things that we have done in the last couple of years is then to update our own systems with other things that we know about. Okay, of course, SDG alignment, but also impact management project, right? The five dimensions of impact. And, and again, tweaking those each time to balance quantitative and qualitative data and bring in the videos that we have of the end users because the voice of the end user is critical to, to informing whether value has really been created. So I think this is really intense approach. We could go more into longitudinal studies and statistical studies, which we have done for particular organizations with particular funding that was provided for or by donors, foundation money, essentially. But, but in principle, I think that where we want to go is keep that field and user focused input throughout our system, no matter what. Yeah, it's such an important part of the equation, but it is also the, can be a challenging part of the equation. I think, especially for the traditional finance and traditional investment world that is moving into impact investing, that is not a, that's not a natural intuitive approach. I, you know, it's there in that world, you're used to having a, you're used to having robust amounts of data on tap at your disposal at any given moment of the day. and things happen, tend to happen top down, right? It's just a lot more hierarchical decisions flow from the top down and it is not as responsive to the needs of the, the very group you're trying to, to try to help. And it should be obvious if we want to know if we're having an impact, if we want to know whether what we're doing is of any value, why don't we speak to the, the people we, we purport to help? 
but, but given the gap and the, the distance and to the challenges of getting, hearing those voices. And then also, I think sometimes just quantifying some of that data can be challenging. Sometimes it's told in stories and it's very qualitative in nature. And how do you turn that into something quantitative that you can measure and be precise with is sometimes challenging. You were mentioning a little earlier that the, you know, the nature of the returns can sometimes lead us to fund and to pursue opportunities that maybe aren't where the greatest need is, but where the best return potential is. And I think in the same way, things that are easier to quantify can lead us in impact measurement towards certain projects and certain measuring certain attributes that are maybe more easily quantifiable, but aren't necessarily more helpful or more accurate assessment of whether we're measuring that impact. And so I love that you've got this sort of relentless focus on we're going to keep the end user as the barometer of whether we're having an impact. I have a board member who actually has a similar experience as we work together, in fact, in Afghanistan, and she's, she's a metrics person, right? She's a social scientist and statistics philosopher. She works from data analytics now. And uh, whenever we talk about this focus on the end user, what well, is good design thinking? And she always said, this is just basic principle of product development. How can anything be good unless we've actually centered it around the end user? And, and I think if you, anyone who's done sort of design work and will say the same thing, this is almost commonsensical in the tech world, but we learned it intuitively. And, and this really is at the heart of what we're doing. And perhaps I'll segue into your invitation to explain what we're doing at the moment to make sure we don't run out of time. Please. So, yeah. Yeah. So what we're working on is I'll just, um, segue into that particular part is something called Global Good Lab within Insan, because one of the things that we've seen, and it's exactly like you said, it can be overwhelming with all the standards and also difficult for, for institutions that are not used to it to even imagine the amount of work that is involved in capturing that impact. But what, one of the things that we have learned ourselves as a nonprofit who wanted to report to our funders, both financially and in terms of impact, is that we didn't really have a tool to do that. So we had to make one up. And so we designed in-house something called PPS, which is the Philanthropic Performance Statement. And we were essentially tired of all these generalizations about overhead expenses, all sorts of fallacies about how nonprofits should operate and should not operate. And also the fact that many of them did not report on their impact. So you have rating agencies that put four stars and five stars on nonprofits on the basis of their overhead expenses or some weird regulation checklist, but not never really getting into, well, is this nonprofit actually changing lives? So we thought there was a real need in the market for a simple tool, which is the, the equivalent of, if you condensed it, would be like the equivalent of financial statements in the business world. Except that would be PPS, a philanthropic performance statement for nonprofits. And that would give sort of an overall idea of how is this organization doing? How is it performing? This notion of accountability and trust, but not in a punishing way and not with false generalizations. Because again, it's really not about percentages. First of all, any percentage has to be put over 
a number of years so you can see a trend and you can have footnotes explain particular things. But we wanted to basically capture governance structures, capture the financial data, capture the communication transparency of an entity, and also capture uh, social impact. So I think in the impact section of the PPS, it's exactly what you said. It's arriving at something that is easy enough for organizations to capture, but meaningful enough to give us a sense of, you know, is there something sustainable that is being built here? And we're never going to have 100% certainty on it. It's not that different from any other event in life. If you have a kid that turns out well and gets a PhD at Harvard, you can't say, a parent can't say, that's just me. Yeah, maybe it's you, but maybe it's their own experiences, maybe it's the genes, maybe a lot of life is the result of a combination of things. And I think we should be comfortable with that. We should be comfortable with that, but we should also, we should also attempt to update and upgrade our tools in the nonprofit space. So this is one of the things, the Global Good Lab, that we're raising uh, money for, and uh, particularly in Canada for this. And we've signed an agreement with Charities Aid Foundation, where we are essentially raising money to, to work on this product, the PPS, and really develop it as a proper product, as you would have a tech product in a for-profit space, so that we would test the product with end users, nonprofits, foundations, etc. And, and roll it out because I think the entire space is missing this kind of holistic tool. So that's one thing we're working on. And this is a couple of million dollars. And this is exclusively for Canadians because it has a huge component of education and awareness dissemination that we talked about before. So this is one thing. And then the other thing is the impact investment stuff, the capital that we want to raise in a 10 million range to enable us to do more of what we've done. We have a few investments at the moment, but again, where I think we're ready to scale. I think the zeitgeist is right. I think Insan's experience and track record is now solid and uh, being based in the UK at the moment, registered in the US. By the way, donations in the UK are also tax deductible. When you register in the US, we found a way to do this through uh, a partner organization. So I think we're in a, in a good situation now to be able to, to raise that kind of money. So essentially, if any philanthropist is listening, obviously we're talking about grant money for catalytic funding that's going to change many lives at the minimum. And, and if all goes well, it's, it's going to be doing that over and over again. And so that's really the proposition, education, health, supply chain, focus on sub-Saharan Africa. And we call it boutique as well, because we do listen to philanthropists if they say I'm crazy about this particular country or this particular sector. So that's the second thing that we are working on. And then, and then generally, as I said, because the model is relies on the generosity of a number of experts, right? Lawyers and private equity types and sort of impact experts and, and loads of other people were underdeveloped in terms of marketing generally. We don't know how to do fundraising online. We haven't cracked that code. Whoever has an ability and, and a willingness to help out, so we welcome any form of involvement in terms of expertise, investment committee, board, etc. Yeah, I, that's really great. So just to summarize that, you 
you can raise, you can, you're looking for donors from UK, US, Canada. Those are all places where you can issue charitable tax receipts. There's opportunities to support your catalytic philanthropy through the, the investments that you make through aiming to raise 10 million and people can roll up their sleeves and, and get involved. And if they've got some sort of expertise that they can also provide, you're happy to and willing to engage them and benefit from that so that it's not just necessarily this hands-off, they hand over some money and then never really see or hear from you again. You're, if they have an appetite to be actively involved, can be. And then at a minimum, would get detailed reporting back. And that's one of the other things that you're raising funding for is this idea of, hey, we want to produce even better reporting, this PPS, this philanthropic performance statement, which sounds really interesting, by the way. And they have, and you have an ability to donate and support your work in creating those. Is that a fair summary? You're an excellent listener. It's very impressive. <laughs> excellent listening well, skills. It's, it's great. It's perfect. No, you've done a good job of explaining it, but I just want to make sure that these points don't get lost. And I'm maybe at the risk of just repeating what you already said eloquently. No. I just want to make sure people understand what the you know, value proposition is here at no, I think it's one thing that we've learned is it's always good to repeat. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for, thank you for clarifying it as well. I'll just add maybe three things again to clarify, because even though we've had this long discussion, essentially the proposition on the fundraising front on, on all sides, impact investing and the global good lab is really, it's a philanthropic donation where the philanthropist is going to get a tax deduction. That's what they're getting. It's safe, it's secure, it's a grant. What we do with it, the risk-taking part, catalytic part, is essentially whether inside will get money back to reinvest or not, but there is no risk. And there is also no money back, no financial return back to the philanthropist. So I just wanted to clarify that. Secondly, very quickly, we're also registered in India. India is going through, of course, many things, many transformations, and of course, a very sad period because of COVID. But generally, we are also registered in India and can take Indian funds as well in India only. So for any, <laughs> never know, anyone mm -hmm. is in India. Yep. Um, Listening yeah, there, yep. yeah, you never know. And, and finally, and I think this is the big vision uh, picture, is we started out with the system and allocation of capital in the greater system. The ultimate vision, and we're going for 10 million or so. We're applying for foundation money, larger foundations, high net worths. And of course, if anyone has money sitting in DAFs, now the time to, <laughs> to do more with it. But essentially, the vision is really to times 10, times 20, right? Hundreds of millions in catalytic funding. That's really our vision. And I see us really sandwiched, for lack of a better word, between on the one hand, the DFI types of institutions, right? Development finance institutions. <clears throat> I really like Grand Challenges Canada, for instance. Those types of actors that understand exactly what we understand, right? Because they've seen like, very similar adventures and, and they understand the field and they understand the innovation potential. And so funding with them, funding thanks to them, on the left-hand side would be phenomenal, and this is where I see us grow in the future. And then on the right-hand side, I see it as potential partnerships with impact investors where they could, again, partner with us, where they could follow up. So we come in at the 200, 
uh, you know, 50 to 200,000 range, and they could follow up for series A, B, et cetera. And so in a way, we would be doing the early search of exciting ventures that are changing lives and they could follow through. So I see that as a natural potential partnership. And, and, and then in terms of skills, we could benefit from their people in terms of due diligence and investment committee types, and they could perhaps benefit from our experience in terms of impact. So the way I see us grow at a much larger scale after our 10 million raise, which I'm going to assume for the sake of my own <laughs> positive mindset is, is imminent because we're really looking at achieving that in the next year. Really, the vision is there is the scale of the problem. So I think this is how I see this grow. And hopefully the permeability between these various types of actors, government slash nonprofit slash for-profit is going to be a little bit loosened, I think, over time. And I think this is really where we're going to start seeing some real innovations once we all have a bit more flexibility to play around with the right types of capitals at the right stages of funding of these various ventures. It's wonderful. For those who are listening, the website, Farah, that they can visit, I'll, I'll link to in the show notes as well, but it's, what's the website? Yeah, www.insangroup.org. And that's Insan with two A's. Insan with two A's. That's awesome. I'm going to link to all that in the show notes so people won't have to, but if they're listening and they can't go look up the website, they can type it into their browser. And thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is a really wonderful conversation. I love that you've thrown your heart and soul into tackling these types of problems in this type of model, because I, I know firsthand how challenging it is to work in these environments, to raise capital in these, uh, for this purpose. And, uh, and you do have to be a little bit insane to, <laughs> to do it, but it's in a very good way. And we need more insanity like you've got. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dave. I, I think it's a privilege to be on your podcast, to be amongst uh, all these innovators. So thank you. And, and thank you for being you really, because otherwise we would not have uh, a voice. And uh, of course, thanks to all the work we've done wouldn't have happened without the support of all our donors. And we have an, we're so fortunate to have an incredible board of directors at Insign, Investment Committee members, and, uh, and so many other supporters along the way. So thanks to everyone. Okay. Thank you. And we'll have to have you on again down the road and hear get an update on, on what's been happening. Okay. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.